0: I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today, I am delighted to welcome my guest, Ms. Robbie Dierhoff. She is a forest entomologist with the Missouri Department of Conservation. She received both BS and MS degrees in biology from Truman State University in Missouri. I saw her excellent presentation on two increasingly common herbicides used on genetically modified commodity crops, soy and cotton. And her presentation explained how these herbicides used in both urban turf treatments and in agriculture contribute to harm trees, native plants, garden plants, and impact the food chain. And I knew I wanted her to be my guest. Welcome, Robbie.
1: Thank you, Melinda. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here today.
0: Well, I have heard that you claim to be a bug nerd. How did you fall in love with bugs?
1: Well, let's see. I get to say now that I've been collecting insects for well over 30 years. I was pretty young when I started my first insect collection. And I don't know, there's just something fascinating about them. You really can't run out of different species. You'll never find them all, even in Missouri. And so I just think they're really interesting and beautiful. And they have so many different ecosystem functions. You know, insects are in every niche of every ecosystem, and they're just fascinating to me.
0: You know, I'm really glad you brought up the word ecosystem function, because What I've come to learn is that we don't pay enough attention to the value of those ecosystem services. And I am not trained in entomology. I'm not trained in agriculture. But I've learned from those who are that there are many more beneficial insects than there are harmful ones. And yet we seem to be not trained well enough. And so we see a bug and we go, I've got to kill it.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of people, it's a natural reaction to kind of assign good and bad to parts of nature, particularly insects and arachnids and ticks and things like that. And I don't really see nature that way. I don't see it as good and bad. A lot of times the species are there because there's a food source or there's an opportunity for them to thrive. And so I see it more as Just opportunity versus the good guys and the bad guys. And sometimes there are certain insects that to us humans, they may cause us some problems in our gardens or whatnot. But I've also learned in my own garden that nature tends to take care of itself. And there's a lot of mechanisms for parasitism and control that just occur naturally if you step back and and let nature do that on its own. Not always, but a lot of times.
0: Well, it's interesting. What I've learned in my work with organic farmers is that they've been asked, you know, what do you do about pests? You're an organic farmer. You can't use a lot of these harmful chemicals. And they say, well, I don't really have a problem with pests. If they do, they tend to introduce another species into the mix. So they have found that biodiversity is a solution to pest problems. Do you yeah. find that as well? Yeah, I would agree
1: with that. So biodiversity of plants, not just of the other insect species, but you often need a biodiversity of plants around so that those insects that may be predators or offer some sort of parasitism or control on the ones that we would consider pests, they utilize those plants in some way, whether it be nectar or pollen or some part of their life cycle. So, you know, a biodiversity of plants around your garden, particularly native plants that support a wide variety of species, will in turn help you control sort of secondarily the pests that might be plaguing you. And I think the organic folks have figured this out. You'll often, if you go to an organic farm, you'll probably see a wide diversity of plant species around. And it also brings in birds, which can help be predators. And it really starts to bring that ecosystem feel back to something farming that is sometimes not really an ecosystem anymore, at least not a very good one. So it's more than just releasing insects that may be there to control a pest. It really requires that you look at the whole surroundings and try to cater to what is needed by those predators and parasitoids.
0: Well, it's interesting from a food system perspective, biodiversity seems to be important when it comes to resilience. So, for mm-hmm. example, you might have a pest that destroys one crop, but by having the biodiversity, you have other crops that you can depend on that season. I attended one of your sessions that you did on forest health and tree health because I like to keep trees on my own property, my own small yard healthy and you spoke about two herbicides that are increasingly common and especially used on commodity crops as I mentioned, especially soy and cotton and that these herbicides they are affecting trees negatively and then that impacts the larger ecosystem. So let's step back, what do you want us to know about how these two herbicides came into our environment in greater use.
1: Yeah, so, you know, in the beginning, and by the beginning, I mean, about 2017 is when this came to my attention. A former colleague of mine and I we were sitting in our office and we received an email from the weed science folks over at University of Missouri and it said, "Be on the lookout for increased injury on off-target trees and plants this summer caused by herbicides with the active ingredient of dicamba, and I read it and I thought, well, that doesn't sound good. I've never heard of anything like this before, and and I was of course aware of herbicides, but didn't really know much about them. To be quite honest with you, it was never a field of study of mine or something that growing up on a farm that I really had anything to do with. So. I thought, well, this is really interesting. And both of us looked at each other and like, well, I guess we'll see how this plays out. And that was the beginning for me as far as what's coming down the pipeline for Missouri and for Missouri's trees. Now, this affects more than just trees. This affects the gardens in our backyard. This affects the prairie plants and the blooming flowers we see along the road. So trees happen to be my field of study and my interest in it. But this is something that affects lots of growing things in the ecosystem. And so what's going on is since 2017 there's been an increase in the use of the active ingredients dicamba and 2,4-D on midwestern farms from many millions of acres of soy and cotton and even corn acres are using these two chemicals. And they've been around for decades, since the 40s and the 60s they've been used. But now there's been a massive increase in the amount of pounds of them that are being applied on an annual basis. Because we now have tolerant cotton, soy, and corn seeds, that you can spray these chemicals over the top of those growing commodities and not kill them, but kill the weeds that are growing between the commodity plants. And in the past, this was not possible, particularly with cotton and soy, because they were so sensitive to both dicamba and 2,4-D. So with the emergence of more and more glyphosate or Roundup-resistant weeds about 25 years ago, farmers started looking for new solutions in the herbicide world. And the big ag companies responded by developing, over the course of many years, soy and cotton seeds that were tolerant to these herbicides. And now we are where we are because of that.
0: What's so concerning is that These particular herbicides have a propensity to drift or move via something called vapor drift. So they're volatilizing, they're moving to non-target plants, including trees, and causing damage. And it's hard to put your finger on exactly where the drift is coming from. Because if I understood correctly from your webinar, and I will provide a link to that for our listeners, these products can drift for miles.
1: Correct. Yes. So I want to make sure that your listeners really understand vapor drift or volatility, because I find that this is the hardest thing for people to wrap their minds around. So when we talk about herbicide drift, it's really easy for all of us to think that, you know, we envision a sprayer in the field and maybe it's a little bit too windy that day and the sprayer is actively putting out Herbicide and the wind takes those water droplets with herbicide and it moves it physically out of the field and onto the tree line or prairie that's right next to it. So that is what I like to call physical drift. But what we're actually seeing, that is possible with dicamba and 2,4 D by the way, but what we're seeing as the bigger problem is what we call vapor drift, where the sprayer is in the field, they're abiding by all the label restrictions, the winds are at the right speed, they have done everything correctly, they sprayed their herbicide over the top of their plants, and they left the field. Unfortunately, the nature of dicamba, and even 2,4-D to some extent, is that it can volatilize for up to 96 hours after application. So, even after that spray droplet has dried on the leaves that it was intended to hit, it can, due to temperature, humidity, heat, pH, several different factors, it can then turn into a gas. And then that volatilized herbicide can be blown by the wind, either in a temperature inversion layer or may even volatilize and be up in the atmosphere and come back down in rainwater. Those two methods are how it can be moved around the landscape and not just to the forest that's right next to the field. It can end up miles down the road, potentially. Because this is not traceable, really, we don't know how far it can go, but it's suspected that it could go five or ten miles down the road just in a temperature inversion event. So it's not like Farmer Brown, you know, their field is sprayed with blue dicamba and, and Farmer Smith has purple dicamba and we see where it ends up on the landscape. It's not that easy So that's why it can go fairly far. But when the temperature is above 85 degrees, there's almost a guarantee that dicamba is going to volatilize.
0: That is my concern, especially in light of climate change. I think we're seeing some shifts in how hot it gets and changes in rainfall. For example, we have now 80 degrees easily in May. So... Mm -hmm. In the urban setting where lawn chemical services are coming out and spraying these chemicals, it's easily going to be able to move.
1: Yep. So dicamba and 2,4-D applied in an urban setting, a lot of times I believe it's applied multiple times throughout the growing season. So I have a colleague in Minnesota that told me recently that his yard is sprayed by his lawn care company five to six times during the growing season with dicamba and 2,4-D to control the dandelions and other yard weeds. And in his neighborhood, that's the standard. Everybody does this. And so we were talking about the implications of that. You know, why so frequently and why such a chemical that we know even in Minnesota summers, is likely to volatilize and maybe cause damage throughout the neighborhood. But unfortunately, that's just the public perception at the time in that location. But I want to loop back to what you said about climate change, and I want to link it to what we're seeing in the forest. And so the last five years, we've been looking at various aspects of this in Missouri. And one of the study sites we have over on the Mississippi River, just on the northern end of the Missouri Boot Heel, we watch these trees leaf out in the springtime and we know because of climate change we are starting to see trees leafing out anywhere from 7 to 10 days earlier than they used to and we think this is just enough of a window that the herbicides the dicamba and 24d that are being used early in the growing season to kill the winter annuals before seeds are planted we think that those herbicides are the ones that are really having the greatest impact on our trees. So as those leaves are starting to unfurl for the year, they're starting to expand, they are most sensitive to dicamba and 2,4-D at that time. Once it's July and they're fully hardened off and mature for the year, we don't think that the herbicides are having that big of an impact on those leaves at that point. But in order to get the really Disfigured leaves and the heavy symptoms, it's occurring early in the growing season. And part of it, I do think, is climate change because they're leafing out earlier. And then also, our rains the last three years in Missouri have really been concentrated to the early part of that growing season. And then it's been dry the rest of the year. And so, I think that if these chemicals are coming down in rainwater, like we suspect they are, then it's having a pretty heavy impact on the trees during the early part of that growing season.
0: Wow. Let me take one break because we are halfway through, and I want to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and we are speaking with Ms. Robbie Dierhoff. She is a forest entomologist with the Missouri Department of Conservation. She did a fabulous presentation explaining how dicamba and 2,4-D are increasingly used in our country, specifically on commodity crops and how that affects the larger food system. And that's where I want to go now, Robbie, with regard to trees and how much we depend on trees for our food. There was a farmer down in the boot heel of Missouri, the southeastern part, and he had a peach tree orchard that had been affected by drift. He won a large settlement from Monsanto, which is now Bayer, because of the loss of his peach trees due to dicamba drift. However, I think there's a bigger story here, and that is he didn't just lose his trees, his community lost access to that important fruit. We call it these food specialty crops, but they're the ones that keep us well. We want to be eating more fruits and vegetables than tomatoes and eggplants and peppers. And then in the tree world, we depend on nuts, pecans and walnuts and all of these wonderful berry bushes to keep us well, and all of these crops I mentioned are susceptible To harm from dicamba drift. So I don't know that anybody's really talking about the tremendous loss, not only personal loss to that specific farmer, but a much greater loss to the health of his wider community.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. I don't know how it's affected the economy down there in Campbell, Missouri. But that little town is centered on Bill Bader's peach farm. There's a whole bunch of jobs that were related to that farm. Their annual festival is the peach festival. You know, it's a big deal down there. And so it's really sad that in a place in Missouri that is already considered the most unhealthy place to live, I think the 10 counties that are down in that area are just about the top 10 counties in Missouri where you don't want to live due to pesticide impacts on human health. And then you have something like this, where the truck farmers down there really can't grow any tomatoes or any other kind of fruits and vegetables, and the peach farm is all but gone. It's just really sad. I do feel really bad for that community and for the rest of us, because we could get those peaches here in Columbia during the summer, and they were delicious, but now they're not available.
0: Exactly. And so where does that leave us? Do we have to start importing fruits from, say, Colorado and California? And they're dealing with their own environmental crises, like problems with drought, they have problems with fire. And I think if we look at true resiliency in our food system, which we must, then we need to re-regionalize our food system and get more local food as much as we can.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. That would be a really nice way for us to go as a society. It is difficult, I think, to get there, but with the younger generations, there's just more interest in that, and I'm I'm hoping that we'll see a shift occur Mm -hmm. in the coming years.
0: I do, too. Well, you had quoted an Arkansas farmer in your webinar presentation, and he said, it's amazing. Once you start looking what you see— and he was referring to tree damage from drift. But I think his point is really important in that once we start to open our eyes and make observations, we can really see what kind of damage is occurring. There are some things we can't see. As you mentioned, you know, these herbicides aren't colored. We don't know when they've landed on our lawns or our property, but we can tell from plant damage, if we know what to look for. And your webinar has wonderful images of what this damage looks like. You've also mentioned this role for citizen science. Tell me what you think we can do in our communities to become more aware. And do you recommend any action steps?
1: Sure. So yeah, I just want to loop back around to the idea that once you start seeing this, once you know what to look for, it will scare you how often you see herbicide injury. And that has been a major thing for me in the last few years is just becoming more aware of herbicide through the channels of dicamba and 2,4-D, but then realizing that there's a whole other side of this where there are so many herbicides that are out there. We detect other herbicides besides those two on some of our study sites, which is alarming as well, things we never expected. And what I can tell you is that fully a third of the tree health calls I get on an annual basis end up having an herbicide component to them. And it's really scary what we're doing to our own yards. And ag fields have their own issues with herbicide, but a lot of this is being done by homeowners accidentally on their own property. And so I just want to make sure that people really take into consideration what they're putting on their yards, fully read the labels, try to go all organic if you can, but just know that something you can get at Lowe's or Home Depot can actually be very, very devastating to your trees. So just be aware of that. And as far as the citizen science goes, we currently here in Missouri don't have a reporting system, for example, for citizens to see damage and then report it to me directly. If somebody wants to email me, that's fine. I'm not the agency in my state that tracks this. There is a pesticide misuse and complaint form That can be sent in through the Missouri Department of Agriculture, and all state departments of agriculture have these options to report to them. What I would say is that we are coming up with a new project, and so we may need those reports in the future. I know Arkansas and Illinois are taking citizen science reports. In Arkansas, it's through the State Audubon Society and Dan Scheinman, and in Illinois, it's through. Kimberly Pritchard and the Prairie Rivers Network, they've done a great job of tracking herbicide injury in their states. And so hopefully we can start to do that in Missouri in the future. But I want to encourage people that if you are seeing any kind of damage in your yard, on your property, report it to your State Department of Ag. They're overwhelmed and they may be unresponsive, but do it anyway fill out that online report, send it in, collect some leaves, throw them in a Ziploc bag in the freezer, and if they want to test them later, they can. But report all the damage that you are seeing in your yard. I think it is going to make a difference in the long run on whether we can get some of these herbicide regulations changed, but it's going to take all of us reporting it and making an effort to do so, even if we feel like we're not being heard, we still need to do it.
0: That is great advice. I had experienced damage really for the last several years in my garden. And on numerous occasions when I have called the horticulture department, I've been told you'd need to collect the leaves and send them to a lab at my expense to see what kind of residues were there. But what I learned from your webinar is that the damage often occurs after the plant has metabolized the herbicide. So the time to collect the leaf is when you actually don't see the damage. So that's a real conundrum.
1: Yeah, that is difficult. And that's been one of the issues in the last five years of me working on this, where we had to really figure out when do we collect leaves so that we get enough residue that the leaves test positive? But how fast is this metabolizing on a mature tree? There's just so many questions because most of the work that has been done with trees and any kind of herbicide, really, is all done on little potted trees in greenhouses, not on bigger trees growing out in the forest or out on the landscape. So it was pretty difficult to figure out. We had a lot of tests that came back as negative for residue, but there's nothing else that was causing the damage. There's no insects that were causing the damage. There's no diseases. So it had to be some kind of chemical but we had a hard time being able to detect which one. And part of that is because it is expensive. So there's a lab in South Dakota that we use where for $212, you can test for all of the plant growth regulators, which is about 13 different chemicals. And their plant growth regulators are the group of herbicides that dicamba and 2,4-D fall into. And a lot of the near neighbors of dicamba and 2,4-D are also volatile. So we target that group because we know in a forest setting where we aren't experiencing direct physical drift, the drift that is coming in has to be coming from volatility or on the rain. And so that group of chemicals is the most likely target. But we also would like to test for other things. And for those of you that may be concerned about your yard or maybe your garden is directly adjacent to a farm field, you'd probably be interested in testing for things besides the plant growth regulators because you may have that opportunity for direct physical drift. And at that point, the sky's the limit on how much one sample might cost from the lab. It could be thousands of dollars to test for several different chemical types. And it's very cost prohibitive. But yeah, one of the things we learned through our testing on state lands is that if you're not there within about three weeks of the actual exposure to the chemical, if it's dicamba like or 2,4-D or a close relative of those, you're going to miss it. The symptoms will be there, but the chemical will not.
0: Mm. Okay, we just have a couple of minutes, so I want to loop back to insects. Mm-hmm. How does the use of herbicides and the harmed trees and all of these plants ultimately affect insects?
1: That is a really good question. And at this point, we don't entirely know, but I have some suspicions. So in these areas where we're looking at herbicide injury and detecting it, one of the things we're seeing is not a lot of insect feeding. So a healthy forest has lots of different insect species and a healthy tree will have lots of insect species that are utilizing that tree during the growing season. And so it's not uncommon to see leaves that have been chewed on by caterpillars or beetles or various types of insects. What we notice in our herbicide-injured plots is that there's not a lot of insect activity. We don't see a lot of leaf galls. We don't see a lot of caterpillar feeding. And so I think that there's various mechanisms of the herbicide that are affecting those species. For example... Caterpillars are very sensitive to compounds that are not normal. So let's say a caterpillar, its host is white oak, but it detects there's some kind of residue on that leaf that just doesn't seem normal. That caterpillar may not be killed by that residue, but it will not feed on that leaf because it does not like the scent of it. So what we'd like to look at in the future are some oleoresins that may be part of dicamba or 2,4-D or chemical breakdown that could be off-putting to insects or may even kill them. And so I do think that the way these leaves are affected by these herbicides is probably affecting the way galls grow on leaves and maybe the way that the leaves form, how thick they are or their cells, the consistency of them, it may be affecting how insects feed on them or desire to feed on them. But another interesting thing, we're starting to see full ecosystem impacts In our study sites, these leaves that are so damaged seem to disappear more quickly on the forest floor, which reduces the amount of leaf litter that we have, increases the bare ground, and in really hilly sites, maybe erosion. Leaf litter reduction can reduce our ability to use fire in these ecosystems to maintain them reduce invasive species through fire, but oak forests are controlled by fire. And so we try to use fire as much as possible to increase the health of our forests. But we're also seeing effects on the acorns. These acorns that are in trees that are damaged by herbicide are really malformed. They're not viable. They're not providing food for birds or squirrels when they're malformed. And so we're starting to see just a whole lot of ecosystem impacts due to herbicides.
0: You've proved that everything is connected. (laughs)
1: Everything is connected, most definitely.
0: Well, we've got to close, but I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN in Columbia, Missouri. And most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Robbie Dierhoff, forest entomologist with the Missouri Department of Conservation. But the subject today affects all of us because everything is connected. Thank you so much, Robbie, for your time and your expertise.
1: Thank you, Melinda, for having me on today. I appreciate it.